But I'm glad to be back to speak to you guys. This is a great, fun thing to do, too. Uh, and we are going through the Bible, and we've made it to the book of Jonah. And I want to start with a question. Here's my question. Can God use me? But I want you to ask, can God use you? Can God use you to make an impact in the world? And do you have to have some huge surrender to the call and go to the mission field and, and go far away or go with us to Nicaragua or, um, or distribute shoeboxes in some faraway place? How much does it take for God to use you? I want to share with you a story. John Hargrave is the one who made me aware of this. This book, Saddam's Secret, written by Georges Saddam, um, is a story of an Iranian uh, who had a really interesting impact, an, an Iraqi who had an impact in the, in the Gulf War. Here's what he says, though. As an Iraqi pilot and ultimately as an air vice marshal of the Air Force, I spent most of my life serving my country. My connection to this place is real and very deep. I am an Assyrian Christian, born and raised in northern Iraq, and a descendant of the original inhabitants of this ancient land. My people were making a living from the mountains, rivers, and fertile plains of the Tigris and Euphrates Valley long before Abraham made his historic journey from Ur of the Chaldeans to the land of Canaan. My ancestors were living in the ancient capital of Nineveh. My ancestors were living in the ancient capital of Nineveh when Jonah arrived having been sent by God to call our pagan forebears to repentance. At that time, Nineveh was the capital of an Assyrian empire. The armies of Assyria were led by warrior kings with strange-sounding names like Shernacherib, Tiglath-Pileser, Sargon, Supiuliumis, and they conquered much of the ancient world, destroying the nation of Israel five separate times. The people of Assyria worshipped the gods of nature, but they did not know God. So God sent Jonah to tell them to repent, or else he would destroy the city as he had done to Sodom and Gomorrah. To this day, we still celebrate a three-day festival called Bathu de Nineveh, meaning the Feast of Nineveh. It's held each year three weeks prior to the Feast of Lent and about nine weeks before the Easter celebration. The reluctant obedience of one Old Testament prophet lingers... 3,000 years into the future with a man who traces his Christianity to the revival of Jonah. One man's reluctant obedience that we're going to see today. 3,000 years later, this man traces his Christian heritage to that one act of reluctant obedience. Can God use you? You think you got a little bit of reluctant obedience available? God can use every single one of us. And he wants to use us because he loves the world. In fact, that's the message of Jonah. Jonah is a wild story. Jonah is a crazy story. But the message of Jonah is very simple. God has compassion for a needy world. And this story is used to draw us in and highlight that one single point. Back in 2010, I spent six messages going through the book of Jonah. I'm going to try to do it in one, one hour. So here we go. 
Danny Hayes says this, the book of Jonah is very different from the other prophetic books regarding literary style. Most of Jonah is composed of narrative instead of preached poetic oracles as in the other prophetic books. A lot of what you have in the other prophetic books is their sermons, a little bit of narrative set up and then their sermons. In Jonah, you get one five-word sermon, and it's not even the one we're supposed to listen to. Most of it is narrative. Unlike Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah, when Jonah is called by God to prophesy, at first he refuses to obey and instead flees from God. Only after he almost dies in the sea does he reconsider and obey. Furthermore, in general, the people of Israel ignore the message of all those other prophets— The people don't repent, and thus judgment comes on them through the Assyrian and the Babylonian invasions. In the book of Jonah, by contrast, the audience, the pagan Ninevites, they respond to the prophetic message of the reluctant prophet, repenting and asking God to spare them. So in effect, Jonah is about the only prophet who is truly successful and who brings about a repentant attitude in his audience. Ironically, he doesn't like it. And he gets angry about it, only to be rebuked by God. In the end, besides being a book about salvation for all people, the book of Jonah stands as a foil for the rest of the prophetic books. What happens in pagan Nineveh, they heard the message, is what should have happened in Jerusalem, but didn't. It's a fascinating story. Um, So much so, I've got so many resources out there, I didn't even put them all on the page. Uh, There are more resources for you to kind of grapple with what's going on in Jonah than I could even talk about. But I'm going to set it up this way. We've talked again and again about how the nation of Israel was united under Saul, David, and Solomon in a united kingdom. When Solomon finished reigning, the kingdom was divided between the north and the south. The north is called Israel. The south is called Judah. In the north, because they had no kings who would lead them to revival— In 722, the Assyrians, of which the capital is Nineveh, comes down, and in 722, they are taken and they are obliterated. They are scattered around the world because that was the Assyrians' foreign policy. When we invade a a country, we don't take them captive or take their leaders away. That's what the Babylonians did. We scatter them and take people from other nations that we've conquered, bring them into their land, take them, scatter them to other lands so that there's not an opportunity for people to reunite. I'm going to just stop there. Because Jonah is a prophet to this northern kingdom of which Assyria in 722 is going to be used by God to judge them. He is a pre-exilic prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. Here he is, and I want you to pay attention. Jonah prophesies in 760. I just told you that the obliteration of that kingdom takes place just 38 years later in 722. He is prophesying, and what's going to happen is the nation he's preaching to is going to be used by God to destroy his people. Now, (laughs) I want you to pay attention to this too. Do you see how close the dates are? Jonah prophesies in 760. That's when Amos prophesies, and that is when Hosea prophesies. And both of those prophets are preaching to the nation in the north, telling them, you're being unfaithful, and God is going to judge you. None of them repent. But in particular, I need to show you that Hosea's message, and and, and if you remember, Jonah and Hosea lived at the same time. Jonah probably listened to Hosea preaching. Hosea's message includes this idea that God is going to 
judge the nation. I mean, that's not news. But listen to exactly how he says it at one point. They will not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria, he will be their king because they refuse to return to me. This is Hosea preaching. Jonah hears this message. The nation's not returning, and God's going to use Assyria to judge them. Keep that in mind. God is going to call Jonah to go to a major city that's going to eventually become the capital, Nineveh. He calls them to, him to go there. Meanwhile, he's heard this guy preaching, saying God's going to use them to judge your own people. So let's see if we can figure out what's going on in this book. Who composed Jonah? We actually don't know who, who wrote it. Jonah may very well have written it himself. However, the fact that we don't have any resolution in the book to the story leaves this open to speculation. Perhaps he repented and didn't mention it for impact. Perhaps he never repented and someone else wrote the story down for us. I don't know who wrote the book, but there's no resolution. At the end of the book, God makes his point and there's silence. You, you do not know how Jonah responds. Who is Jonah? Well, Jonah's a really interesting cat. <laughs> uh, Jonah was from Gath Hefer in Galilee, about 11 miles north of Nazareth. He prophesied in this northern kingdom of Israel during the reign of King Jeroboam II. That's going to be important in just a moment here. He lived during a prosperous time for the northern kingdom. So Israel was prospering, they were succeeding, and a time of decline for the nation of, of, of Assyria. The Assyrians were kind of, uh, had just experienced some significant defeats. He was a very early prophet and a contemporary of Hosea and Amos, perhaps Obadiah, in the north, and Isaiah and Micah in the south. So he's, he's in the midst of all of these guys that we call the 8th century prophets. They are a, a significant group of, of prophets who are prophesying during this time. Here's what the Bible tells us about Jonah in another place. Pay attention. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, another Joash, became king of Samaria. So Jeroboam became king of Samaria. That's the northern kingdom. And he reigned for 41 years, a long reign. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not abandon all the, sons of Jer the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, uh, into which he uh, misled Israel. So Jeroboam is going to reign for a long time, and he's going to do very evil things. But he's going to be successful. And we read this in the next verse. He restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amitti, the prophet who was from gath Hefer. Jonah, even when this evil king is reigning, Jonah is the one who's given the message, you're going to be successful in expanding the borders. Not because God is blessing him, it's because he's setting them up to expand the borders so that the Assyrians pay attention to it, and now the Assyrians are going to come down and take care of them. But he still has this, this identity of the prophet who is, who's very positive about his, nat his nation. He gives a positive prophecy. We're going to expand our borders. 
Who's this audience of Jonah? Who's Jonah writing to? While Jonah preached in Nineveh, a major city of Assyria, the revival there didn't last long, and the nation, which had recently suffered some military setbacks, soon rose to power to become one of the most ruthless and powerful kingdoms of the ancient world. Jonah preaches during a time of decline. There's a revival, but then they become super, super powerful. That's who Jonah is preaching to in his messages. But that's not the audience. The real audience for the message of Jonah were the nations of Israel and Judah and God's people throughout the nations. (laughs) People just like you and me who need to know the character of God and his desire for them to share God's compassion with the world. Here's the message of Jonah. Too often we're like Jonah. We're comfortable and we don't want our enemies to be blessed. And I'd rather be comfortable than compassionate. And the message of Jonah is God has compassion for people. How about you? It's very important that, uh, very probable that God sent Jonah to Nineveh, which was at the time a very significant city of the great Assyrian empire, during the years when that nation was relatively weak and Israel was on the rise and expanding its borders. We know that Israel's on the rise expanding its borders. It's also likely that Jonah was aware of the message of Amos and Hosea, which made clear that the Lord was going to judge the Lord of the nation of Israel by using a nation from the north, namely Assyria. So here's basically what's happening. There's a map here. There's just one arrow, and it's pointing the wrong way. It goes the wrong way. God calls, God calls Jonah to go north and a little bit east to go to Assyria. And Jonah gets on a boat, and he heads as far west as he possibly can. This is a prophet of God who's already delivered a message that we've seen come true. And he is unbelievably reluctant. And here's where he's going. He's going to this ancient city of Nineveh, um, which became much more powerful about 100 years later. The excavations from the archaeologists, as they reproduce pictures and drawings and all of the foundations of the building, would tell us that 100 years after Jonah, this is what Nineveh looked like uh, along the river. Pretty impressive city. Um, It perhaps wasn't quite this elaborate when Jonah was there, but still a major, major city. So why was Jonah written? Why do we have this book that's really weird, by the way? It's not typical because it's not a lot of his messages calling God's people to repent. It's God calling him. He goes to another place and calls them to repent. And in fact, there's only one five-word sermon. I'm going to show it to you. It's mostly a story about this guy. The last two verses of the book of Jonah reveal the clear message of the book is to reveal to us the compassion of God for the world. Jonah himself is simply a foil for the wrong attitude held by many. And here's the deal I'm trying to set you up for. Jonah loved his comfort. He loved his country and he loved his comfort. And it blinded him to the compassion that God had for a needy world. Do you think our nation, do you think you and I need that message? Is it possible that we are blinded by our love for our country and our comfort that perhaps we are blinded to God's compassion for a needy world and a world that needs to hear about his love? So let's move into some stuff here. This is a fun book. Just four short chapters. 
Chapter one, Jonah flees in a boat. Chapter two, he prays in a fish. Chapter three, he preaches in a city. And chapter four, he complains under a plant. There we go. Go. I'm going to get in a boat and go the other way. I'm going to end up in a fish. In the fish, I'm going to pray. I'm going to get out of the fish. I'm going to finally do what I ought to do. I'm going to preach, but my heart's not in it. Then I'm going to watch and kind of hope God still judges them. And when he doesn't, it's going to make me mad. And then God's going to say, I've got a lesson to teach you, brother. And the key word is a word that's used twice at the end of the book. God's compassion. The Hebrew word is chus. It's the kind of compassion you have when you see someone and their need hits you in the gut. God has that. You know what blinds you to that? You know what blinds you to needy people? Your patriotism and your comfort. And God wants us to see something very, very different. We've got a chart out there that charts all of this. There's some really interesting structures and things that go on in the book. I want to highlight, though, that there's a symmetry in the book. Uh, The first part of the book is a commission that is rejected. The second part is there's a commission that's accepted. After he comes out of the fish, God says the same thing. He told him, arise, go to Nineveh. He ran the other way. When he comes out of the fish, God says the same thing. Arise, go to Nineveh, and he does. By the way, just interesting, if if you're three days in a fish which I really think happened, if you're three days in a fish, part of what is happening is you're in there with digestive juices, and if, if God didn't protect him some way from the digestive juices, what's happening, I mean, if you just stay in the shower too long, you, your body starts to turn white and all shriveled up. Think about three days in a fish. When that dude showed up in Nineveh, I think he was a sight for sore eyes, and maybe people paid attention to him. But God shows his sovereign power at the beginning. Shows a sovereign plan to forgive people at the end. In the beginning, the sailors are the ones who are responsive to God. In the end, Nineveh is the one who are responsive to God. Nowhere are God's people responsive. <laughs> a fish saves Jonah, and the Lord saves Nineveh. All of this is designed to show the compassion that the Lord has for people. There's also some interesting movements in the book. Um, Jonah goes down to Joppa, Yarad, he goes down to Joppa. Then he goes down into the bottom of the ship. And then when they throw them over, he goes down into the sea. Jonah's going down, 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 entering a fire. (laughs) And believe it or not, at the end of the book, it's getting hotter and hotter and hotter as he's not learning the lesson. There's another fascinating thing that happens in the book. The Lord is so sovereign in this book that he appointed a great fish. The word is used, mana. He appoints a plant. He appoints the worm, and he appoints the east wind. By the way, everybody in the book is responsive to God except one dude, Jonah. The sailors do what they're supposed to do. Nineveh does what they're supposed to do. The fish does what it's supposed to do. The dead gum worm does what it's supposed to do but not Jonah. What's the message of Jonah? Here's how I would summarize it. The author recorded events from the life of Jonah, including his disobedience, discipline, and reluctant obedience to preach God's gracious message of repentance and salvation to the hated yet responsive Assyrians in order to show God's graciously chosen people that salvation out of certain and imminent death is available to the Gentiles because Yahweh is compassionate 
He's a compassionate God. He sees our need and he is moved by it. So let's move our way through this really quickly. You know the story. Jonah flees. And by the way, he's fleeing from the presence of the Lord. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of excuse me, the son of Amitti, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going, down, which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He's trying to escape the call of God. Colin Smith says this, whenever you decide to run from God in rebellion, there'll always be a ship to take you where you want to go. The world's going to co cooperate. The world's going to validate your excuse. Oh, you can't go on that trip. You can't show up on Monday night. You can't be a part of that mission team. There are too many things going on for you. Oh, your hot water is too precious to go take a cold shower for about a week. Is it? Is it? Jonah's confession is fascinating. When, when, um, when Jonah is, is on the boat, the, the entire chapter of chapter one is a big chiasm that, that all boils down to this thing right in the middle. Jonah's confession, and he is telling them, I worship Yahweh. Really? The irony of this book is amazing. He is running away from God, and they're asking him, hey, dude, who are you? Is there any way you know what's going on with this storm? Yeah, it's me. I worship the God who made the heavens and the earth, and I'm running away from him. What? Well, what are we supposed to do about this? And I think Jonah goes, maybe I can get my permanent out. Throw me overboard. But his confession is pretty amazing. I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Really? Just because you say it doesn't mean it's true. Are you thinking about your comfort and your patriotism? Or are you thinking about your compassion? I have the heart of the Lord. Really? You can say it. Jonah said it. And it absolutely was not true. But the pagan sailors, they call on the name of the Lord. They, when they find out Jonah is the, worshiping the true and living God and he's running from them, then they call on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let, this this, let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us, for you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. By the way, their prayers are to Yahweh. They're praying to the right person. Now, a lot of people are going to say, yeah, and, and so Jonah is, he's thrown overboard, and because he's, he's thrown into the sea, it saves their life. He's just like Jesus. Jonah's not like Jesus. You can just put your like Jesus stuff on pause until the New Testament tells you you can do it. That's really the, the rule in interpreting the Old Testament is if you can make it look like Jesus, Hold that thought until the New Testament, and if the New Testament tells you that looks like Jesus, then you can do it. Because there's a lot of people who are going to make a parallel between Jonah and Jesus, but there are they, Jonah's a flawed prophet. Jesus is the Son of God. <laughs> Jonah's running from his calling. Jesus fulfilled his calling. Jonah pre pre preaches a really unclear message. Jesus was a very clear message. <laughs> Jonah, no joy. 
Jesus for the joy set before him, he did everything. Jonah doesn't die, others live. Jesus dies so others live. I'm just using this as the foil for all of the prophets to just go, don't do cartwheels to make Jesus show up everywhere. Jonah's a bad guy. The pagan sailors call on the Lord. Then they called on the Lord and they said, we earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life. Do not put this innocent man's blood on our hands. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea. The sea stopped raging. Then the mirror feared Yahweh greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to Yahweh. On the boat, there's one guy who should be praying and sacrificing and fearing the Lord. And the one guy who said he's fearing the Lord is not. And all the people who shouldn't are. It's a crazy story. And the Lord God appointed a great fish, not a Greta fish, a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Um, I think this is hilarious. You may not. A lot of people wonder whether, um, whether this could really be true, that there was a great fish that swallowed Jonah. Um, I believe it's true. I believe God can do the miraculous. That's, that's it. But it's fascinating to me. I have the Hebrew word. The word for fish in Hebrew, how you pronounce it is dog. Uh, and it means fish, okay? But it says dog. So in Hebrew, he was swallowed by a dog. That's even more amazing. <laughs> Got to do whatever he takes to get your attention. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord from the stomach of the fish. Chapter 2, I need to explain something. Chapter 2 is not Jonah praying to get out of the fish. He's already in the fish when he's praying. Jonah chapter 2 is something very different. I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depths of Sheol. You heard my voice. He's drowning. Listen to what it says. Um, you hurled me into the deep and the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled around me. All the waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I've been banished from your sight, yet I will look again to your temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth barred me in forever. But you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. How did God bring his life up from the pit? By causing the whale to swallow him. He's praying as he's drowning. He's been cast away from the presence of the Lord. And as he's going down in the water, he prays, Lord, save me. And how God saves him is to be swallowed by a fish. When God answers your prayer, um, don't be perturbed if he sends a fish to swallow you as an answer to the prayer. You brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. When I was fainting away, I remember the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. And then he gives this lesson. Those who regard vain idols forsake your faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. He's in the fish, and he's, he's, he's composing in his head. I don't think he's writing in the fish. I think this is later reflection. <laughs> But he's, he's saying, this is what was happening to me, and, and you saved me, and, and I am going to praise you for this. When God answers your prayer, praise him for the answer, even if it's from the belly of a fish. You, you have no idea how God's answering your prayers. Jonah's deliverance. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto dry land. Jonah's in the belly of the fish, writing down, and said, man, I was drowning, and God, you saved me. I got, I, I'm in here, and I got saved. Then 
Then the Lord commanded the fish like he commanded, uh, he's going to command the, the wind and the, the worm. By the way, even the fish obeyed. The pagan sailors, the Ninevites, the fish, the worm, even the fish is going to obey. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation I'm going to tell you. And here's Jonah's preaching. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Um, it's, it's five words in Hebrew. He shows up in the city. He knows, because he's already told him, I know I worship the Lord who made the sea and the dry land. Later on, he's going to say, God, you're gracious and you're compassionate. You're slow to anger. He knows all the doctrine. He gets it. He knows God is gracious. But here's what he says. 40 days, Nineveh wiped out. Peace out. This is not a guy who wants a positive response. <laughs> but the Ninevites do respond. Then the people believed God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The king hears about it, and the king says, everybody's got to fast because we need to avoid this um, judgment from the Lord. And he says, hey, I don't know how this thing works, but even the animals. It's crazy. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it because God is gracious. He's compassionate. He's host, and he's being host with Jonah. He's being compassionate to Jonah. But God has this, this compassion, this desire to forgive. He, he, he has to judge, but he doesn't want to do it. And if you'll just align yourself with him, he will move and he will allow his judgments to pass over. But it greatly displeased Jonah and he became, literally the word is hot. He got hot over this. When the sun came up and God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head. Uh, I think God looks at, you hot about this, dude? I'll make you hot. I'm trying to teach you a lesson. And here's God's lesson. You had compassion hosts on the plant. You saw the plant that I brought up to bring you shade, and then I appointed a worm to eat it, and this plant went away, and your shade went away. And you looked at that, that plant that no longer provided you shade, and when you saw it, your heart went out, and you had compassion, and you were pitying, and you were so sorrowful for what you had lost in your comfort. God said, you have compassion on the plant. I have compassion on Nineveh. Look at his words. These are the final words of the book. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this vine, though you didn't tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who can't even tell their right hand from their left. They haven't been taught right from wrong. And many cattle as well who are repenting in the city somewhere. Should I not be concerned about that great city? You've got compassion on the plant. I've got compassion on the people. Your patriotism and your comfort has become more important to you than the heart of God for the world that needs to hear his message. What do we do with this? Well, Jonah portrays the real-life attitude of some of God's people, and it's not good. I would say most of God's people in the Old Testament. Jonah provides us with a glimpse into the heart of God, which is full of compassion, 
And Jonah reiterates God's desire to get the message of his love to the world. Even in the Old Testament, God wanted people from all nations to understand his love and his compassion. So what should we believe? God has passion for all nations to know his forgiveness. God's compassion is great even when ours is not. God wants wants to use us as a part of his plan to reach the world with the good news. So how should we behave? Pray for unbelievers around the world. Make it a part of what you do. You don't have to go there. Pray for them. Pray for believers who are witnessing around the world. If you're not going, pray for the people who did go. Get involved in missions. You can pray. You can send. You can go. You can welcome. You can go on our mission trips. Get involved. Get your fingerprints on the Great Commission. One of the ways you could do that is October the 9th here at the church. You don't have to do anything. Come pack shoeboxes. Those shoeboxes are going to Ninevites. (laughs) They're going around the world to places you can't go. And you can get your fingerprints on that. You can pack your own shoebox during Operation Christmas Child. But you know what? I'm, I'm obsessed with Operation Christmas Child because I think it is the most effective way to get the gospel to the nations. I, I'm convinced, 100% convinced it is. And our church is pretty maxed out. We can pack more shoeboxes, but we pack a whole lot of shoeboxes. You know what we need? We need people who are going to join our team to motivate and mobilize other churches to pack. And there's a lot of places you can be involved. You can put your fingerprints on a shoebox that's going around the world next Monday night. You can pack a shoebox. You can get involved on our year-round team. We need church relations members who will connect with five to ten churches and encourage them and support them um, and supply them with all the resources they need so that other churches uh, can, can flourish in this ministry. And, and why should all that happen? <laughs> because God has a compassion for the people around the world. And we can't go there. But you can get a shoebox there. You can pray for somebody who's there who God has called. So begin a regular time of prayer for the world to come to know Christ as Savior. Get out of your comfort zone, look over your patriotism, and pray for the world. Commit to be involved in Operation Christmas Child somehow this year. And find some tangible way to support a missionary. Just ask us, we'll tell you how you can support. Financially, prayer, encouragement, visits. God loves the world. (laughs) He wants them to know about his grace and the message of Jesus Christ. Can God use you? Yeah. He used reluctant Jonah, and it caused a revival. Father, I pray that you would use us, (laughs) that you would use us for your great compassionate purpose. Father, I pray that you would um, remind us how how much you love us. And and as we remember how much you love us right now, I pray that it would stir our hearts to love others around us. Amen.